Welcome to this episode of the podcast Nursing Edge Unscripted, the Scholarship Track. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Palazzo, a member of the editorial board of Nursing Education Perspectives. Nursing Edge Unscripted and our track entitled Scholarship celebrates the published work of select nurse educators from the NLN's official journal, Nursing Education Perspectives, and the NLN Nursing Edge blog. The conversations embrace the author's unique perspectives on teaching and learning innovations and the implications for nursing program development and enhancement. In this episode, we will discuss effective teaching and learning strategies for teaching about racism. We will discuss the perspectives of my guest today, Dr. Danica Sumter, who is a clinical associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin School of Nursing and authored Art Praxis, Evidence-Based Strategies for Anti-Racist Teaching and Nursing. The article can be found in our current September-October special issue of Nursing Education Perspectives. Dr. Sumter, welcome. Thank you, Stephen. I'm happy to be here. We are very happy to have you here. And I want to start off by first asking you to just describe the process of anti-racist teaching and learning and why it's imperative to dismantle the structures and systems that support a white narrative in nursing education. And very specifically, I guess, for the audience that have no experience in this area and are very hesitant or unsure of how to move forward? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm going to take a page from Simon Sinek and start with the why. First, I think um, even within the question, this idea of the white narrative, or some authors have labeled it kind of the white racial frame, is so normative within society in general, but nursing as sort of this microcosm of society. And it is so normative that it's invisible. Um, and so unless we are very intentional about making the invisible visible, the status quo is never going to change because we can't change what we can't see. And so this idea of white dominance or the centrality or the supremacy of whiteness within nursing, that's what keeps us from being able to diversify the workforce, which we know is required to be able to eliminate health inequities. And so when whiteness is the standard for everything that's considered good and right and beautiful and you name it, um, why would it be surprising if those of us who are racialized as Black would feel like we don't belong, uh, would feel like our experiences or our ways of knowing, our ways of being within the world don't count as real knowledge, that don't count as real experiences. And so to experience this constant state of feeling like you don't belong and you don't matter, that takes a lot of emotional energy, a lot of intellectual energy. That's energy that our, our white counterparts don't have to expend and that they can apply, you know, towards the rigors of nursing school if you're, you know, a nursing student or within the promotion and tenure um, if you're a faculty and even within the staff room. And so for us to be able to acknowledge and to see that, that's got to be kind of our starting um, or the why. And then I'll kind of transition to the first part of the question, the how, the how we do that. Um, and I borrow a metaphor from Emily Style with the seed project. She uses it, um, the, the window and the mirror. Um, she uses it to refer to curriculum, but I like to just use it as I think about this work. 
Um, and so she talks about the need for us to look in the mirror first. So this introspection. Um, and I heard a great quote that revolution begins with the self in the self. Um, and so this idea of examining ourselves, reflecting on these everyday moments when thoughts, words, actions manifest that are reflective of these narratives about dominant culture, um, the way that I've been socialized to believe when those things pop up, like I've got to become more aware of them in my everyday life. Um, and so anti-racism is not this checklist, but it's mm -hmm. this transformation process. It's about my becoming. And so with me, like it's a daily battle to resist anti-Blackness within myself. And so I give myself grace, but meanwhile, I also continue to do the hard, uncomfortable introspection that's necessary when I see it pop up within myself. So when I can begin to see it within myself more readily, then I can see it outside. So I've looked in that mirror, I've gained some insight, and that has improved my quote unquote eyesight, if you will, so that I can see it outside of me more readily. And so I can then be more open and solicit feedback from others during those times when maybe I don't see it. Um, and so that that's kind of the why and a little bit about the how. Wow, that's great. And there's a lot there to analyze, right? Um, or to think about uh, from a perspective of an educator in nursing. I think all of us, depending on our frame of reference, our, our upbringing, our, where we're at in our process of education, whether we're a novice or experienced, um, all fall along this continuum of you know self-reflection, self-analysis, understanding, you know, your place in the world and, and how it came to be and, and how your experience is different, so different than many other people's experiences, but we tend to view it through a certain lens, like you you mentioned, right? Um, this, this kind of normalized lens of white culture and how that affects everything we do in the classroom and subconsciously for many, for many people, right? Unless you learn how to, to recognize it, um, which kind of brings me to the next question. And, you know, how does a nurse educator, and I've had experiences in the past as a novice educator where I did it very poorly and an experienced educator where I did it better, of course, not, you know, in a perfect way, but I've done it better. But how does a nurse educator stop this, start this process of examining their own, let's say you have a course that you've taken on or you've been teaching for a while, you know, opportunities to implement and strategies of encountering, reflecting, discussing, and taking action, which was what you, the framework you used in your article when discussing anti-racist teaching in the context of their course. Yeah, um, I think so. It sort of dovetails into the first question. So when I start that process of introspecting and reflecting, I'm going to see my world differently. So my frame starts to shift and change. Right. And so I start to view my curricula. I start to view my teaching strategies. I start to even view my interactions within the classroom differently. Um, I would also say that students are a great repository of ideas. I think they are so ready for this and are waiting on us as faculty to hop on board. So soliciting and talking with them, how can you even like relinquishing some of that power is an anti-racist strategy, dismantling that hierarchy mm -hmm. within the classroom space that I talk about. Uh, we talk about in the article. So co-creating some assignments, like they are often aware and they're doing community work, community activism. What are they aware of? What are those local issues that 
maybe they're aware of that you're not? Who can we partner with within the community? What are the needs that are there that the students can galvanize around to take action? I mean, there's so like that is the role of the university, right? To improve the health, the wellness, the well-being of the communities within which right. we find ourselves. It's not just about knowledge generation for the sake of, but in the service of. And so how do we truly partner with um, but there are some taken for granted assumptions that have to be addressed when we're working with community members. So how do we help our students privilege the knowledge and the experience that the community members are bringing to the table? Right. Um, it, it's not just me. I've read all this stuff in an article or in a book. And so I know what's best. Um, but understanding from the get go that communities typically already know what they need. And so they don't need us to swoop in and tell them right. it's a matter of, you know, access to power and resources. That's the issue, not access mm -hmm. to knowledge and experience. And so how do we, again, come alongside communities as co-learners and co-laborers? So we're role modeling that for our students within the classroom space and then taking them out into the community. Um, and then often in nursing, we're good about teaching the what, kind of the statistics, the stats, but we neglect the how and the why. So how did this certain inequity come to be? Like, what's the historic policy or law that might have been the initial historical insult that led us here? Um, in one of the classes, I taught a graduate elective. It was called Race, Power, Privilege, and Health. And we had an assignment. It was called um, Throughline. And I got it from the NPR podcast, Throughline, where they take a contemporary issue and sort of trace it back through time. Like, how did we get here? And so thinking about that, like, how did we come to these disproportionate rates of asthma within the black I love that idea. area of town within the city where you are. Well, let's trace it back. So, you know, in 1928, 1929, Austin had a city plan and they intentionally placed, you know, all of the black and brown folks on a certain part of the city. So yeah. how, do we, how do we trace that? Thinking about the why this happened and the how it continues. And so that kind of it takes um it gives some more context to it. And then also thinking about the biases, the assumptions, the stereotypes about this population. Where did those come from? Um, what do I, how do I, why do I have them? Why do they persist? And what are the consequences of that? You know, you mentioned we go into to, to healthcare because we want to care and we have this caring ethos and this identity. And so realizing that we can care and we can also perpetuate harm, like those right. two things can coexist. So helping our learners kind of um, become okay with the complexity of that. Um, we've got to incorporate more personal introspection and retro um, reflection. And I think the, the shift to CBE, there is a huge emphasis on self-reflection and the metacognition piece. And so I think that will help facilitate this as well. Um, I, I talk with my colleagues in social work and they are big about sort of situating the practitioner as a part of the therapeutic equation. And I think oftentimes in nursing, we sort of pretend that we're just a part of the wall. <laughs> we're just kind right. of part of the backdrop and we're not really impacting the encounter um, in, in substantial ways, but like we're bringing our own stuff, you know, our own baggage. Oh, of course, our right. Assumptions into this. Own so biases, our own perspectives. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think Christine Tanner's kind of revision of the her clinical judgment model takes mm -hmm. that into account too. And so I think we're we're shifting, we're heading in in these good directions. But yeah. thinking of encounters that we already have uh, within our classes and how do we then pull and tease out um, the systems and structures of oppression, racism being one, reflect on those intentionally, bring those into discussion, and then how can we take action around them? That's great. You know, I've um, been using the framework of Raymond Wodowski and Ruth Ginsburg for probably 
15 to 20 years now, which is about uh, really about adult motivation through cultural responsiveness. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they always and they always start with you have to create this safe and inclusive environment before any learning can take place. And I've used that as part of my uh, strategies always going forward. So thinking about that, how do we create this kind of space for students and faculty to feel you know, I mean, you know, you can't make everybody feel safe and not vulnerable, right? But you can create an atmosphere where safety and and, and um, vulnerability are recognized in a way that can make people feel more comfortable coming forward and having these type of discussions. Yeah, I'll have to look into that framework. That sounds it's really, yeah, I would recommend it. It's really great. They do great work. Um, I think when we think about safe space, um, so it depends like, uh, largely on how we define and consider safety, mm-hmm. like safe for whom. Um, so often when conversations about classroom safety, especially as it relates to conversations about race, um, oftentimes the safety of the white students is what's centered. Um, and so we have to be mindful and intentional about centering the margins. Um, so sometimes safety and comfort are conflated. Um, and learning new things is inherently uncomfortable. Um, right. So it, it's it upsets something that we held to be true. And sometimes it, it refutes or negates things that we thought to be so and turns them on their head. Um, and so I, I think about this book um, that I bought for my son, Lies Your Teacher Told You, kind of it, it just is, is unsettling. Um, and so I have to think about that. Um, how I, the things that maybe I, I think I should have known, especially as a Black person, like when I learned things about racism, it's like, why didn't I know that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that can be unsettling and uncomfortable. Um, but I think about the article uh, by Clements and Aral that talk about brave spaces uh, rather than safe spaces. And so our organizations and hence our classrooms are not race neutral. And so we should not presume that they're safe for all learners or really all faculty for that matter, um, who are racialized as black or brown are really lots of marginalized identities. Um, and so I think when we talk about centering the margins, um, if you're not sure like to ask, um, so creating anonymous polling, um, Stephen Brookfield has this critical questionnaire um, is a good way to think about asking those questions to, to make sure, again, because I'm coming in with my, my view, my frame, my thinking, and I'm thinking everything is good, but I've got students who are coming in with lots of different identities and it may not be so good. And so unless I ask, I may not know. Um, and so anonymous polling is a good way to do that. Again, that critical questionnaire to ask at the end of each class. Um, but it doesn't even have to be you know, super formalized. Um, I've done check-ins as a way of building community. I think that's another huge tenet of anti-racist praxis is building community. So um, we, within our capitalist society, our competition, and it's about that piece. And sometimes students come into nursing school with that competitive um, sort of nature within them. So unless we are intentional about building community and helping us see that we are stronger together. And so that is, you know, checking in with each other at the beginning Mm -hmm. of class, you know, how are folks doing um, is just a simple, easy way to do that. You know, that time that you have when we are face to face, you know, at the lectern at the end. So letting students know I'm here for you, you know, during break, kind of just, you know, checking in and asking them how they're doing. with life outside of class um, is a good way that they know that you care about them. 
Um, again, this is not uh, the default. So, you know, being intentional icebreakers, um, introductory discussion boards where, you know, you have a video of yourself as the instructor sharing um, right. yourself, role modeling, you know, transparency, vulnerability, um, as vulnerable as I'm willing to be is generally the tone that the students will take. They'll match me. Um, so, you know, I think about bell hooks, like us not expecting students to do and to go where we're not willing to go ourselves. Um, and so, so much of what I do as a faculty, it, it reminds me of parenting. And I had this moment when I was a clinical instructor, um, I would just grab a bag of salad because it was easy and quick, you know, on my way out the door. And I would eat salad with my students for lunch. And I, I remember the students remarking about, oh, you know, you eat so healthy. And I'm thinking, I didn't even know y'all were looking at what I was eating. Right. Um, but the power of just our actions and role mm -hmm. modeling, what is that? What message does that send to students? Um, and so we are teaching by what we say. We're teaching by what we don't say. When we ignore and kind of go over conversations like a bump in the road and don't address issues when they come up in the moment, um, we're role modeling by what we do and what we don't do. Um, and so, again, I think creating a community agreement um, at the beginning of class is a good way to sort of have these conversations and to be explicit. Um, what do students perceive as respectful, disrespectful? It may be very different from what mm -hmm. I as a faculty think. And so let's put that out there. What do we hope gets accomplished within our time together? What are we afraid of happening? And so how do we create a community agreement so that we ensure that our hopes are actualized and our fears are minimized? And then holding each other accountable to that each time we meet um, is a good way. That's something I've done in, in classes as well as with faculty um, within book clubs. Um, another just sort of way of building community is social annotation. Um, I've used hypothesis, but there are lots of different uh, platforms out there, but just ways to help students to get inside of each other. Um, curiosity, I think, is this. I keep coming back to in all of my readings. It is this lost kind of dying art um, within our society in law at large, but just becoming curious about one another's thinking, not trying to prove a point, not trying to trying to win an argument, but tr truly trying to understand and become curious about what one another is thinking. Um, and so social annotation can help um, with that as well. I'm not sure if I even answered the question. Um, I think you answered it. I think you gave us a lot to yeah. think about, right? And I and I and here is probably you know, we do a lot of thinking or talk about doing a lot of thinking, but we really need to start moving to action. Um, you know, the, the, these discussions have been around a long time. And, you know, are we moving the needle forward? It seems we are, but I, I think the action piece is where people get stuck. Um, the, you know, the discussion piece is the easier part amongst each other, but then moving forward and what do you actually do is what becomes difficult for, for most educators. And, you know, I, I'll also add to that. Um, so Glenn Singleton, in his um, creative conversations about race, he uses this compass to sort of uh, locate yourself within conversations about race. And so it's divided into four quadrants. And on the left side, there is kind of the, the moral or the beliefs that you have. And on the left bottom, it is the affective or the feeling. 
Um, and then on the right side, it's the thinking or the head mm-hmm. quadrant. And then on the, the um, right at the bottom, it's the doing. And so I think within the academic space, we spend a lot of time thinking and then doing. Um, you know, within conversations about racism, there is often a like, oh, this is a problem. This is really bad. Okay, what can I do? And right. there is a rush to action, which it, it needs to happen. However, I think we don't necessarily spend um, enough time on the left side of that quadrant, examining our feelings, our the affect, the emotion, especially as these conversations can generate. And like emotion, like that's data. We have emotions for right. a reason. Oftentimes I think they're seen as pejorative within the academic space, but like that is our compass. That is what kind of guides us in terms of ethics and what is right, what is wrong. So how do we teach students, how do we teach ourselves to be in tune? Like when my heartbeat starts to you know, elevate, why did that happen? Why did I flush? Why did my breathing just get shallow? What's happening here? Why Why am I experiencing this this way right now? And then leaning into that, what does that tell me about my morals, about my beliefs about, you know, a certain group of people, a certain population? Where did that come from? And so I think spending some time interrogating that intentionally, um, you know, the pedagogy of just the affective is is huge um and then helping sit with that those uncomfortable emotions um can inform our actions a little bit um so that we don't rush and then end up causing more harm than good because i've i've seen that from well-intended people well i want to thank you for joining us uh this is a great important conversation i appreciate your time and the expertise you brought to the conversation and broadening our understanding of this work and how we can even just think about more intentionally introducing this into our specific classroom, our course. And at the very least, for those who may not have any experience, start getting them thinking about, you know, how how we can do this in the classroom. So for that, we really appreciate it. To our listeners, if you have not had the opportunity to read about this work, you will find the manuscript published in Nursing Education Perspectives. And you'll find it in our current special issue, this September, October issue. Um, And I want to thank you again for joining us. Absolutely. It was my pleasure.